a good life from a good God. Somebody in the worship team looked at Facebook this week. Who Who's guilty party? That's pretty good. He picked out the songs. Did you notice good, good father and the goodness of God? And and my sermon title is a good life from a good God. We've been, we've been going through the book of Psalms. Now, when I say going through, we're not doing all of them. As I said earlier, there are 150 Psalms. Uh, I, I'd be uh, too old to even preach by the time I tried to do that. Y'all supposed to laugh at that. I wasn't supposed to be... Um, but I've just been going through uh, the Psalms, and, and here's how that works. I just go through the Psalms and uh, flip a coin. No. Lord, which one do you want us to look at? If you recall, the first week we did Psalm 1, which I'm OCD. My wife says I'm OCD, so I had to do Psalm 1 to begin with. And then two weeks ago we did Psalm 8, and today we're doing Psalm 16, which I guess means... We'll go eight more and do the next one, 24. But I just felt like as I went through these psalms, I just felt like the Lord turned on a flashlight when I got to Psalm 16. And uh, it's interesting that some of your Bibles will call this a mictum or a mictum of David. And uh, if you want to know what that means, good luck. Most, most commentaries, most scholars, most Hebrew scholars don't really know what mictum means. They Some believe it has something to do with engraving and that David, there's three more psalms or four more that David calls this, that David thought these were particularly special and they would have an engraving on them. I don't know if that's what it is, but you can believe that if you want to. It makes you feel good. It makes me feel good. Uh, but this psalm, to, what we do is we go into this psalm is we will join in David's celebration of God being a good God who provides us with a good life. And uh, I also want us to be able to rest. Everybody say rest. rest. And I don't mean just physical rest, although that's highly important, but to rest in our souls, in our lot in life. How many of you know that TV commercials, are they're intended to do one thing? And that's to make you dissatisfied with what you have. You can't be, you can't rest if you're driving a 2014 Ford pickup truck and they come on TV with a 2020 and boy, that thing looks slick. I think I'll get rid of my 2014 pickup truck and get one of them. See, they're in, which by the way, I'm going to keep my 2014 truck for a while, but it, the intention is to make us dissatisfied. And then David deals with this. Uh, somebody wants the password, so I'll give it to you. Here it goes. I don't know who it is. It's like the preacher said, uh, every, every head bowed and every eye closed. Yep, I want the password, so give it to me. We're going to learn that we adhere to God's counsel and direction in our life. Uh, and David deals with that. So if you haven't already, if you would turn to Psalm 16, and I went back and forth several versions uh, to read this from. And there's, there's so many things in each version that I like the way they worded a particular thing. But I, I landed today that we would read from the New King James Version. If you would stand with me while we read God's Word. And I will read this. Uh, the, 
I'll read the whole psalm if you, if you can uh, hold on. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Oh my! I want to. I want to preach on every one of these, but I'll just refrain. Oh my soul, you have said to the Lord, "You are my Lord." My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain. Or support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. And my heart also instructs me in the night seasons. And I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol or the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You can be seated. Yeah, we could just stop right then, couldn't we, Danny? He begins with the words... Preserve, which some of your versions will say, keep watch. Keep watch over my soul, O God. For in you, I put my trust. That seems like a simple, innocuous statement. Except that it's, it's so important for us to be able to put our trust in him. Um, he's, he's praying to God. By the way, some of you say, I don't know how to pray. Well, boy, here's your good chance right here. If you don't know how to pray and you don't know what to pray for, turn to Psalm 16 and pray this prayer to God, just like it's you writing it. And you know what? He'll hear it. And he says, preserve and protect me because I put my trust in you. I know we realize that we don't have anywhere else to put our trust. We do put our trust in other places and other people, but we all, we find out they always fail every time. David's son wrote in Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not depend on your own understanding. If you, if you do not depend on your own understanding, you have no other choice but to trust God with all your heart and to lean on Him. That's verse 1. Verse 2, he said, I said to the Lord. Now the King James, the New King James says, says it differently. He says, Oh, oh my soul, you have said to the Lord. I like this better. I said to the Lord. Uh, New American Standard, several of the others will use that. I said to the Lord. And two weeks ago, we dealt with the fact that David would begin the psalm by saying, O Lord, our Lord. Or in this case, he does the same thing. He says, uh, wow, I still got to have these. He said, "You, you, I have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. He, he said, well, that's kind of redundant. He's repeating himself. Well, not really. The first Lord, as we said two weeks ago, is the word Yahweh. The first, the first Lord is God's name. God has a name. And, and we, we don't often use the word Yahweh. We have, uh, in, in our culture, we have transferred that and, and changed that into Jehovah. And, uh, the truth is, there is no J in the, in the Jewish language. We won't get into that. But he said, I said to, I said to Yahweh, name, you are my Adonai. 
is really what he's saying in that passage. And you know, if you're here two weeks ago, you remember me talking about this. He's saying, you, you, Yahweh, you're my Adonai. You. What is Adonai? It's just a word that means the rightful ruler. It's a word that means the king and master of all. Lord of lords, king of kings, sovereign. All of these words, that's what God's title is. His name is Yahweh. David's saying, you are my God, Yahweh. You're my master. You're my ruler. You're my sovereign. And he, he paints a picture, as we talked earlier, of a God who has not been put in the microwave and shrunk to our desires. And we, he's not been shrunk to the image that we want him to be. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 40, just one verse, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him, who, who's, who's counseled God? Well, we all have. Let's be honest. God, we think well, you should do it this way. God, why didn't you do it that way? God, where were you? Were you asleep? And God says, where were you? Were you watching? He says, and, and again, the New King James isn't the best translation here, even though I, this is the one I read. New King James says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. A better translation is, I have no good apart from God. I have no good apart from God. I think we would all recognize that and, and admit that. Uh, again, David says in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Who do I have in heaven? You could even go, who do I have on earth but you? And there's nothing. Everybody say nothing. We're saying that by faith because we know in all cases it's not true. There's nothing on earth that we desire more than God. And that's obviously where we need to be, that he is premier in our lives. I want you to notice that up to this point, we've gone through two verses of this psalm. Up to this point, all the focus by David has been on God Almighty. And I said to our home group a few weeks ago, I said, our problem is, is that when we pray, here's how we pray. Lord, here's what I need. I need to get this. I need to buy that. I need to have that. I need, we, we go to God's presence and we immediately start bombarding him with our requests. The Bible says, make your requests known to God. But every pattern we see, the Lord's prayer is another one. Every pattern we see, the prayer begins with a focus upward, not horizontal and not towards us. It's to God. Cause you know, if you don't have the, if you don't have a, a, the right God that you're c- calling on, there's no need in calling on him. He begins his song with an upward focus. And then he says something interesting, and this is the way I've translated it. He said, I like your kids. I like your kids. When I, I've said this many times when I was a kid, you know, my daddy was just a bubba redneck from the woods, but <laughs> we never went very many places. And the reason was that we couldn't go anywhere that daddy couldn't bring the kids. Now, there was three boys, and you can just imagine what three Granger... Well, there's four Granger boys in the building, five including Adam, six including Jason, uh, in the building. But he wouldn't. Daddy wouldn't. He, we, we couldn't go anywhere. If, if he had to leave the kids at home, we just didn't go. So we just didn't go very much, because you can imagine. But God says, you got to like my kids. He says, your saints on the earth... 
The saints on the earth, those are the ones who are separate unto God. You say, who are the saints? Well, I mean, the New Orleans saints. uh, uh, No, every one of you who have been born again and born from above by the Spirit of God, you have been separated out of something to God. Now, you might not go by St. John or St. Tim or St. Darren, but you're a saint. He says, you're saints on the earth. I delight in them. Again, we're speaking by faith because sometimes we don't like each other. All right, now, come on. Lighten up. You know good and well, you don't like everybody you go to church with. Don't, don't act like you do. There's some of you I don't like. That's, that's not true, mostly. Uh, the problem with me saying something like that is all the insecure people start thinking, he's talking about me. He's talking about me. I'm not talking about anybody. It's people at home. That's who I'm talking I mean, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he says, I love your kids. They are the excellent ones. How many, how many of you know it's important to love God's kids? You don't have to like them to love them. There's a difference. There's a difference. And the New American Standard there says that God's kids are majestic. And if you want to look around the room and see if you see anybody that you think looks majestic. But that's what it says. He says, I delight in their friendship. Godly friendship is from, (laughs) this is really really complicated, but wait for it. Godly friendship (laughs) is from God. You don't know how long I had to study for that. <laughs> I delight in their friend. He says, pleasure comes from my associating with them. There's power in godly friendship. There's power in covenant that God puts us together. He's saying that, I, that love for those who love God is a characteristic of our love and respect for the Lord. Now, John tells us in his letter, you can't love God and not love his kids. I just hate, I hate to tell you this. He says it this way. If we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? I didn't write it, saints. I just read it. God puts us together. And agape is not a feeling. Agape is not... Uh, an emotion. Agape is a decision. Agape is a commitment that's made re- without regard to emotion. Now, agape will produce emotion, but agape in and of itself has nothing to do with emotion. It has everything to do, to do with I choose to commit myself to you for your betterment regardless. That's agape. And God calls us to be that way towards every one of his kids. I'm going too slow. Everybody agree we ought to love God's kids? And if you, if you didn't, anyway. Then he says, those who hasten after other gods. Now, this one says it a different way. But he says, basically, he's saying those who hasten after other gods, other gods. I just want to sit down there for a moment. Other gods. See, when we hear that, we think of uh, Buddhism or we think of, of Islam or we think of uh, you know, Carrie Krishna back in the day. You think of a lot of different false gods. We think of little bitty statues with fat bellies. Uh, I want to tell you that 
we in the West, we have an issue with other gods. We in, in the Western culture, in the Western economy, because other gods is anything or anyone that assumes a place of supremacy or primary focus in our life. I've seen couples, I've seen married couples who literally idolized one another. And they were so so idolizing of one another, God had no room to be in that relationship. Now hear what I'm saying and hear it clear. God has to come before your spouse. If God does not come before your spouse, you will have a tainted marriage. The, the triangle, I always deal with the triangle. If you, if you're, you're in the, you're here, you and your spouse are here, you meet at the apex of the triangle is where God is. But if you run to one another without God, you got a problem. When we look to people or things for the meaning of life or to get us through life, that's an other gods. An idol in the broadest sense of the word is any God that we make for ourselves. Any Anything that we have promoted into our lives. I mean, there's a long list of things that I hate to even get into it because it can be misunderstood. Education can be a God. Uh, our employment can be a God. Our recreation can be a God. I'm, I'm going to leave golf alone. Of course, I, I don't know why I don't even talk about golf because I hadn't played golf this year. I don't know what that golf ball looks like. So, But anything that, that we put in a position that's between us and God. He says, your sorrows, their sorrows will be multiplied. And he he says an interesting thing. We're not going to pour out any libations, which the pagan worshipers did. We're not going to take up the names of their gods on our lips. That's best understood when we see Joshua that says, therefore be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, returning aside from neither the right or the left. Watch this verse, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling, you shall cleave to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. I'm not, I don't want you raising your hand, but I'm going to ask the question. How many of us in this room are clinging and cleaving to God? Or we're cling, or, or are we clinging and cleaving to something else? God, I know you're over there. And I know, I know you're God and I know you're, you're good, but I'm holding on to this. That's just human nature. Then he says, boy, I got a portion and an inheritance. Verse five. He says, Oh God, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You are. You are my inheritance. You are my portion. Again to Joshua. The Lord gave to Israel all. Everybody say all. I know you're going to be awake if I keep doing that. All the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers. He, he gave them what he said. This is a novel idea, by the way. What he said, he did. So, so it's a missing idea from our culture, and I wish it would come back. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn. And then this is my favorite part of this verse 45. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel and all came to pass. Everything God said, he did it. 
Everything God promised, he did it. Every good thing that he promised, they received it. That's what you call a portion and an inheritance from God. Uh, He calls it a pleasurable inheritance. He said, your lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. We have to reconcile ourselves to the fact that our lines have fallen in pleasant places. You say, well, I'm going through this and I'm going through that. I was thinking this morning, as a matter of fact, I was thinking about Job, and then I turned in, and the sign's been there for several weeks, but I just noticed it today again. When I turned in, Celebration Lutheran sign said, remember Job. I said, yeah, Lord, I need to remember Job this morning. God said, the Bible says Job was blameless. The King James said he was perfect, but the better word is blameless and upright. Job was blameless and upright. Well, now you think in Western thinking and some of our modern church ideas in America today, you would think that he's blameless and perfect. Nothing bad would ever happen to Job. I mean, he's, he's been watching the guy on TV that smiles all the time. So he, everything's good. That's not me, by the way. And yet God says, have you considered my servant Job? Well, we know what happened to Job. I don't want to go through the story. His wife said, anyway. Well, how do you reconcile that? I want to tell you, my wife always likes to quote Corey Ten Boom. She said, I watched my sisters die in, in concentration camp. Is God still good? And the answer she gave was yes. He's still a good God. Your lines have fallen in pleasant places. Your station in life is what you have where God has you and God blesses you. How many of you remember Fiddler on the Roof? Is it Tevia or Tevia? Tevia was on TV. Okay. And I think I even got, I think I have the, some of that. Let's see. Bad when you forget what you did. Tevia is singing. To God and declare it. He said, Dear God, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, that it's no shame to be poor. But it's no great honor either. <laughs> so what would have been, have been so terrible if I had a small fortune? And then he starts to sing, If I were, were a rich man. And then he, then he sang in tongues. Yah, ba, dibba, 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 dibba. I don't know what that is. <laughs> If I were a rich man, and let me tell you, all of us are guilty at times of saying to God, if I were, fill in the blank, if I were married to them, if I were not married to them, if I were living in that country, if I were living in that place, we all, we're all guilty from time to time saying God, and the Bible says that our lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Don't try to change your lines. Our lines are that which falls to me is pleasant. I have a desirable inheritance. I'd like you to read that with me. I have a desirable inheritance. Regardless of your station in life, regardless of what what your checkbook looks like or doesn't look like, regardless of what community you live in, regardless of what your employment, you know, all of us can't be good looking. Y'all can laugh. That's okay. I mean, we, we won't, we, you know, I'm going to tell you a principle that's the absolute truth. It never wavers. And that is the grass is, everybody say always, always, always greener on the other side. 
Always. You get, you say, man, that looks good over there. I think I'll go over there. And you get over there and you look back across the fence and what? Wait a minute. It's greener over there. What's up with that? It's because we need to find our place that God has established our boundaries and established the lines of our life and our inheritance and thank him for it. Then in verse seven, he says, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. Isaiah 9, 6 says, Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Wouldn't it be good if we could develop this, this new idea to ask God? You know, I, every time I get ready to come into the pulpit and, or write a kernels of truth, I say, Lord, what do you want me to write? There's been times I didn't do that. I'll be, I'll be honest. There's been times I sat down on my computer, especially regarding kernels of truth. Never this. But I sit down and start writing something. I get about three paragraphs into it and I said, man, this is terrible. And I delete everything. And okay, Lord, let's do it this way. How about you tell me what you want? He never fails. He never failed. I mean, I've, I've never heard in my life that I know of an audible voice of God. I've heard audible voices, some of you and my wife, but I never heard God speak to me in an audible voice. But I've, every time I pray that prayer in some way, God answers my prayer. I'll be riding down the road. Lord, what, what do you want me to write about in the kernels of truth for this month? Turn on the radio and somebody's singing a song or somebody's saying something. Hey, that's it right there. God spoke. David says God is a wonderful counselor. He gives good advice. Now, I, w- I want to say, and I can't get into this, but I want to say sometimes his good advice comes from, from your brothers and sisters. He'll use them. And then he says, in the night seasons, we talked to, uh, in Psalm 8 about uh, David being out in the field, guarding his father's flocks and seeing the stars in the sky and all the firmament and how he, what he saw and how it, how it drew him closer to God. And he says in this one, in, in verse 7, he says, my heart instructs me in the night seasons. Heart. Some of your Bibles there will say reigns. If you have the old King James, it says reigns. And it's really just the inner person or the soul or the mind. Actually, the Hebrew word is the word kidneys. It's not literal, the kidneys, but it's the seat of feeling and emotion that he's dealing with. And Albert Parnes really says this about that. He says, the natural calmness and composure of the mind, the stillness of night, the starry heavens, the consciousness that we are alone with God and that no human eye is upon us, all these things are favorable to profound religious meditation. I don't like the word religious, but he meant it in a good way. Profound meditation of God. Sometimes you just got to get to that place. And David was in that. He's in the night seasons, man, and my heart counsels me. I hear God because no other distractions. Verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. Where is your God? Where is your God? He says, I set God before me. I've put God in plain view. I've put God, uh, central in my life. He is the, He is the central person in my life, the central entity. Where is God in your life? Oh Lord, I'm, I'm not going to go there. He said, I have brought myself to realize His his presence, 
His continual presence in my life. I've come to, I don't know how often I recommend this book, and some of you have read it, uh, Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Is it Brother Lawrence? I wish George was here. He always keeps me straight. Anyway, Practicing the Presence of God. It's a great little book about how that we can at all times live. He was a cook, a, I mean, cooking a, a monastery, and he learned how to practice God's presence while he was working. You can do that. You, you can set God before you and never move him. He doesn't have to move. He, well, Lord, I, I ain't got time for you right now because I got to go do some stuff in the kitchen. Set God before me. He said, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. I shall not be moved. And verse 9, of course, says, therefore. Therefore, my heart is glad. Because of all the things we just looked at, my heart is glad. And my soul rejoices. And he even says, my body will abide in hope. My flesh abides in hope. Why? Because we recognize all of these things that we've just gone through. And we recognize that we do have, in God, a good life. You say, well, everything doesn't happen in my life that I want to happen. Well, first of all, be patient. Second of all, no matter whether you get those things or you see those things, God will never cease being a good God. God was a good God to Job. Now, I don't want... I don't want to become Job, and I don't want to live his life. But if I was to live his life, I would have to proclaim God is still good. Yes. By the way, if you read the end of the book of Job, it says that he received twofold, double, what he had lost. I'm going to read it. Y'all hang in there. If I can find the book of Job, there it is. This got, I should have read this under the heading of I like your kids. Oh my. When, and the Lord restored Job's losses. Watch this. When he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he'd had before. Don't forget who these friends are. They're not so great friends. But God, God restored everything that he had and double. Why? Because he prayed for these, these, uh, irritants that had been coming around. I don't know who needed to hear that. Maybe me. He said, my body. And then he says, he, he points out David in, in, uh, in verse 10. Well, I used to have song in this Bible. There it is. Uh, in verse 10, he says, you will not leave my soul in the grave. And then he says this, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, if you have a New King James or a New American Standard uh, or some of the other ones, you will notice that your Holy One is capitalized. And the reason for that is, is that he un unknowingly, he has given us a prophecy concerning Jesus. He thinks he's writing about himself and he is writing about himself. It has a twofold meaning. But he's also writing about the Lord Jesus. Peter in Acts 2 says this. Foreseeing this, David spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul, his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh 
see corruption. This God, Jesus, is raised up. So he gives us a messianic prophecy of the Lord Jesus without even knowing it. God is a good God. Because all here in Psalm 16, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, David is telling us that he's going to come and he's going to be our sacrifice, but he's not going to stay dead. He's going to get up out of that grave. And we know he did. And then he finishes up. He says, you will show me the path of life. I call it the illuminated path of life. God, you will show me the path of life. The psalmist, again, David said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Would to God that that would become more than just a verse we quote. It's a very familiar verse, and you've heard it hundreds of times. And it's real easy when we're familiar with verses to just go through the, the rote, your words lamp to my feet and the light into my path, and really digest what that thing says. That God is illuminating our path with his word. So I don't know how to find God's will. Well, I'd start in this book. Most of the time, you're never going to get beyond this book finding God's will. You just look. But God God lights our path. He shows us the way. And the way that he shows us, by the way, is a healthy one. The way that he shows us is the one that we, that we are productive in. God made us to operate a certain way in a certain place. When we get out of that certain way in that certain place, we pay a price. Why do we pay a price? Because God wants us to get back. I mean, I've referred several times to the book Pilgrim's Progress. And if you haven't read that, I highly recommend that you read Pilgrim's Progress. You say, well, it's kind of, it's kind of deep for me. Well, get the children's version. <laughs> There's even a movie you can get. But anyway, Christian, and that's the guy's name. John Bunyan, I always want to say Paul Bunyan. He was the guy with the big blue ox, but John, <laughs> John Bunyan was a, a guy who was in jail for his faith, for expressing his faith. And while he was in jail, he wrote this allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. And his main character was a guy named Christian. Christian goes to the cross. He's got a big burden on him. And he goes to the cross. He kneels at the foot of the cross. And this burden that he's been carrying drops off of him and hits the ground. Allegory. He's born again. And he begins his journey in Christ. And more than once, Christian is tempted to detour from the path. And he finds himself over here in this, in this place over here that's off of the, the path that God has prescribed. And a couple of times, uh, you know, I don't want to give it away, but a couple of times you think he's going to die. Uh, but he, he won't. You just stay with it. You think, oh, they're going to kill him. He was in a mess of trouble. But every time God's grace brings him back to the path. And he begins walking on the path again. When we, when we, when we deviate from God's prescribed way, we pay a price. And we, and the price is whatever it costs to get us back. How many times have I told you that God's judgment is not intended to eliminate you, but to bring you back? And God judges you because he loves you. If God, you know, Hebrews teaches us this. If God didn't love you, he'd leave you alone. 
He'd, he'd ignore you. But when I get off the path and I run into difficulties, you say, well, where's God? Well, you left him. You know, where's God in all this? Well, he's waiting. He's provided some incentives for you to come back. And when you come back, you find yourself working again. Working. He says, in your presence is fullness of joy. Now, we don't need to interpret that as always what a lot of times we we experience in a, in a, a place like this. We sing songs and we really feel God's presence. Um, Brother Charles says if you can have it and not feel it, you can lose it and not know it. But uh, there's a, there is a feeling a, uh, element of this thing that we sense God's presence. But you can be at your job. You can be at your desk. You can be standing over a sink full of dishes. And if you've done what I said earlier, practicing the presence of God, you will find the fullness of joy. If you're not experiencing the fullness of joy, then we need to examine where we have set God and where his presence is in our life. By the way, if you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? God said in Malachi, he said, I, the Lord, do not change. And therefore, I love this therefore, by the way, hang on to it. Therefore, you are not consumed. (laughs) I do not change and therefore... You're not consumed. You're not burned up with fire. You're not driven out into the into the uh, wasteland. But I'll bring you back. And David finishes up this psalm by telling us that pleasures forevermore are at God's right hand. And that he's dealing with proximity there. And I don't mean geographical proximity. But if we want to walk in pleasures forevermore, we must examine our proximity to God. We must examine, as we've covered earlier, is he set before me? Is he, is he premier in my life? I'm not talking about being so heavenly minded, you know, earthly good. Those kind of people drive me crazy. And, you know, somebody you can't talk to without them quoting your scripture. Just, I love scripture, but if that's all you can do, then you need, you got a religious spirit. Woo, boy. I just made somebody mad. I love the scriptures. I think the scriptures are the foundation of our life. I know that the scriptures are intended to bring us to Jesus Christ. So people who who can't talk without quoting scripture, I really wonder about their relationship with God. They just grab, pulled out some memorization stuff and start wagging it around, especially if they're pulling it out, using it for a sword on somebody. Pleasures forevermore at his right hand. It's a good life. How many of you agree we have a good life? Man, alive. I mean, and we, you know, not everybody in this room is experiencing the, 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 uh, the highs of life, but we're all experiencing a good life. Job experienced a good life. So, well, you, well, you got quiet on that one. Did both before, during, and after all the stuff he went through. He would tell us today that he had a good life that came from a good God. And that's what David is telling us in this psalm. That you and I have a good life 
It comes from a good God. Let's see, what time is it? Oh, shoot. Y'all ain't got anything on the stove. Worship team, come up here and lead us in goodness of God one more time. Let's finish out by declaring the goodness of God. I didn't tell them this, by the way, so they're trying to kind of uh, instant in season it out. And while they're coming, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that would cause David to, to write this song and sing this song. We thank you for these words that are imprinted on these pages. We thank you for the Bibles that we have that we consider uh, such a gift. And so the ability to go through these words and to hear your Holy Spirit, Lord God, we, we do not take that for granted. Today we proclaim that you give us a good life. We have a good life from a good God. Lord, help us to never lose sight of that, especially with all of the things that are going on in our world today in every corner, in every facet, in every way. Help us to keep ever more in front of our eyes, before our eyes, that we have a good life from a good God. And we will worship you, and we will honor you, and we will thank you, Lord Jesus, this day. And we will pro proclaim once more that you are a good God. And we will proclaim once more the goodness of God. We thank you and I pray in your name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Join the worship team. Let's all stand up.
the good. 